Well, guys, welcome to RUF. Uh, whether you're whether this is your first time or whether you've been to RUF a bunch of times in the past, just want to let you know that uh, we are really glad that you're here. My name is Andrew. I'm the campus minister. Uh, normally, Eric and Maddie, our two interns, are here, but they're actually away in Dallas for RUF intern training. So if you haven't heard from them the last couple of days, that's what they're up to. Um, but uh, really do hope that you feel welcomed here, that uh, this might be a place where you can come and experience the love of Christ. Uh, potentially in a new or fresh way, uh, and that you might feel just welcomed uh, as you are to come and bring your faith, your doubts, bring all of you, um, and, and rest, rest in the gospel. Uh, I do want to give a shout out to uh, Christ Community Church for providing the snacks. Uh, some of you might have seen Michael. He was here earlier. He's the pastor of college ministry at Christ Community. They're an awesome church down in Huntersville. So if you're looking for a church, I encourage you to check check them out. All right, so last week we started a sermon series on the New Testament letter of First Thessalonians, and uh, we're calling the series "Our Ancient Future Hope for Today." And so tonight we'll be continuing with that series as we look at the first half of chapter two of First Thessalonians. And before I pray and we jump into this passage together, uh, there's something that I want to address: whether you're a Christian or not, if you've ever spent any amount of time with the Bible, chances are uh, you know that it's not al always easy to see how this relates to my life. Um, you know, it's, it's interesting that we're calling this series our ancient future hope for today. If we're honest, I think a lot of times the ancient aspect of this is really clear. It might sometimes feel out of date or archaic, and so it just feels like this old book. Um, or other times, it might feel like the only hope that this provides is just some future distant hope. And so we struggle to see, like, how does this really come to bear and speak to what I'm experiencing right here and right now? And if you're wondering that, that's actually a really good, really important question. Because if this has nothing to do with our lives in the here and now, well, what's the point of giving it any sort of attention, paying any attention to it? But if this has everything to do with what we're going through, well, then it at least deserves a hearing. So I think what we're going to see, especially from tonight's passage, is that this actually does have a lot to say with things that we're dealing with, even right here in Davidson and right now in October of, of 2019. So we're going to see that from 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. Uh, before we do that, uh, would you pray with me? Uh, Father in heaven, um, we come to you tonight and, and ask that you would send us an extra portion of your Holy Spirit, uh, that you might pour him out on us, that he might give us wisdom and insight and understanding into these words, and that, that the Spirit would help us to see how they really do apply to our lives today. Would you come and do that now? We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. So to get us into this passage, I actually want to start with a quote from everyone's favorite regional manager of a fictional mid-sized paper company, Michael Scott. So in season four of the show The Office, in the episode called Fun Run, Michael has, you're, you're laughing because you already know the, the episode, I hope, um, there's a, there's a scene, one of the talking head scenes, where it's just, you know, the 
one of the office workers, in this case, it's Michael talking to the camera. And so presumably off screen, the cameraman or the director asked, asked Michael if he needs to be liked. And this is Michael's response. Michael looks at the camera and says, do I need to be liked? Absolutely not. I like to be liked. I enjoy being liked. I have to be liked. But it's not like this compulsive need to be liked, like my need to be praised. And why am I starting with, with this quote? Why am I starting with Michael's quote from The Office? A couple of reasons. First, it's funny. Um, I mean, here you have Michael, who's completely oblivious to just how desperate he is for the approval of others. On the one hand, he says he doesn't need to be liked. On the other hand, he says he has to be liked. And he compares it to this compulsive need to be praised. So it's funny. But on the second hand, on the other hand, all of us can relate to this on some level. On some level, all of us, like Michael, we want to be liked. And now this desire, kind of on the surface, seems innocent enough. I mean, we all like to want to be liked, like to be liked. But left unchecked, this can lead us down some pretty harmful paths. And it can cause some damage and destruction both to ourselves and to others. For instance, for Michael, his desires to be liked and praised and accepted by people um, causes all sorts of issues. For one, he, he, he struggles to, to get through his managerial tasks. He, he finds it impossible to, to fire people when, when it calls for downsizing. Um, another example, he always makes these inappropriate jo- jokes and tries to get people to think he's funny and hilarious when he's, you know, really incompetent. Um, another example, he brings a really expensive iPod to a white elephant Christmas party where there's like a $10 cap because um, he wants everyone to like the gift that he brings. Um, and then one last example, um, in that same episode, Fun Run, uh, you see Michael scarfing down some fettuccine Alfredo just minutes before his 5K because he's carbo-loading. And he wants everyone to see how fast he can be. And so he can, he can win, win this, this 5K fun run, race for the cure for, I think, rabies, I think is what it was. <laughs> so that's for Michael. But what about for us? What kind of paths does, do our, does our desire to be liked and be accepted lead us down? I mean, what about this? We tend to struggle to let people know how we really feel about them. Whether that's a friend or someone we want to be more than a friend, we never tell them what we really feel about them because that would mean risking rejection. Or maybe we feel like we're stuck in a major or a concentration that we really don't want to be in, but we know that that's the major, that's the concentration that will make our parents happy. Or maybe there's some secret that we're holding on to. Something that we've said or done in the past that we don't want anyone to find out about. The secret that we we are just going to take with us to the grave. Because we know that if that secret got out, we'd be done for. No one would truly love or accept us then. So, And this brings me to my third reason for bringing up Michael's quote. So it's funny, all of us can relate to it, But thirdly, the Bible actually addresses our deep need for others' approval and the hot water that that can so easily easily get us in. 
In many places throughout the Bible, it refers to this deep need, this deep desire, as the fear of man. For example, Proverbs 29, verse 25 says, The fear of man lays a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. But in tonight's passage and in other passages like 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, this desire is called people-pleasing or pleasing man. You can look with me at verse 4. This is kind of going to this is going to be one of our central verses for tonight. Paul is saying to again this church that he recently planted but had to leave in a hurry. He he reminds them that they he spoke to them. Look at the look at the middle of verse 4. He spoke to them not to please man, but to please God. And then if you jump down to verse 6, he goes on to say that he didn't seek glory from people. So the Bible addresses it. We're going to be looking at this tonight, this this phenomenon known as people-pleasing. And what I want us to see Paul, the author of this letter, doing is taking this sin tendency of people-pleasing, fear of man, whatever you want to call it, approval-seeking, taking it and putting it under the microscope. So Paul's taking this, putting it under the microscope, and he's starting to dissect it for us. And he's inviting the Thessalonian Christians and really anyone who would read this letter, which would include you and me, to look over his shoulder as he dissects this sin tendency so that we can see what causes it, so that we can see some of the symptoms of it, and so that we can see the cure for it and how we know that we've received the cure for it. And so that's, that's what we're going to be talking tonight. Those are our, actually, those are our four points. They're really four questions. What fuels our people-pleasing tendencies? What fuels the sin? Secondly, what symptoms or what bad fruit results from it? Third, what's the cure? And then fourth, how do we know we've received the cure or what's the good fruit? So let's just jump into it and let's address that first question. What fuels our people-pleasing tendencies? Um, Paul mentions early in this passage six things and he boils them down into two different categories. The two categories are external pressures and internal inadequacies. So look with me at verse 2. We see the first three in this list of six, and these are all these external pressures that fuel our people-pleasing tendencies. So he says, Although we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of such conflict. The three things that Paul lists are suffering, shame, and strife. They're all right there. And the amazing thing about Paul highlighting this is that he's owning up, he's owning up to these things that would ordinarily um, undermine or kind of cut the legs out underneath a professional philosopher or traveling orator's credibility. Because in Paul's day, if you, especially if you're, you know, a traveling teacher, philosopher, if you've experienced suffering or especially public shame, the kind of, kind of shame that Paul's alluding to, or if you're embroiled in the midst of a bunch of, bunch of conflict or strife, no one's going to believe you. Like, why listen? And yet here, here's Paul boldly saying, hey, we, we went through all this stuff. The implication is that, uh, Left unchecked, suffering, shame, and strife can lead to people pleasing. Um, because in that day, in that age, it's a sign that you've not been blessed, but you've been cursed. And so you can see how the tendency for Paul 
would be to hide that or to mask it, and yet he goes against that tendency to reveal it. You know, this is true not just of Paul and his day, but it's actually true for us too. And I, I can relate to this as someone who um, is, is here because churches and individuals have sent me here to be your campus minister. I rely on the support of others, just like Paul and the other traveling philosophers would have relied on the support of, of donors, of patrons, of ministry partners. And so for me, it's incredible to think, I, I can't imagine starting my email newsletter and saying, hey, let me tell you about all the suffering and the shame and the conflict that I'm involved in at Davidson. That's not going to bring in the big, you know, the big bucks, right? And so like, you can see how Paul is pushing against that grain, pushing against that desire to like make light of or make little of or just ignore or hide any sort of suffering, shame, or strife, these external pressures. Then look, Paul goes on into a second category, which I'm calling internal inadequacies. Look with me at verse 3. Paul says that his appeal, our appeal, so Paul, Silas, and Timothy, our appeal does not spring from error, one, impurity, two, or any attempt to deceive. These internal inadequacies, error, impurity, and deception. Look, I'm not saying, Paul's not saying that everyone that is stuck in or caught up in error, impurity, and deception is automatically a people pleaser. But I think what he is showing us is that every people pleaser is stuck in at least one of these internal inadequacies. Either they're, they're caught up in some wrong thinking, Maybe they think that what really is going to fulfill them is the praise of other people. Or they're, they're trying to compensate for some, some impurity, something that they know they've done wrong or is wrong about them. Or simply they're just trying to deceive others and end up deceiving themselves in the process. And so what do you do? What do you do with these internal inadequacies and these external pressures? And what I, what I want to show us tonight, and what I think the scriptures show us, is that the best thing to do with them is not to hide them, but to expose them. To name them, to expose them, to bring them out to the light, and then to entrust them to the Lord. Because otherwise, if you don't, if you don't acknowledge the external pressures that you're facing, even right here, right now, if you don't acknowledge those internal inadequacies that you feel like you have to compensate for or cover up, these things are only going to grow and fester and just become more and more and more unmanageable and out of control. And, and it'll just dominate your life. You'll just be, just be filled with, with fear, and that fear will drive you to hiding. And it'll, you'll be caught up in this cycle of fear and hiding and, and fear and hiding. And this is one of the reasons why Christian community is just so important. Because it's, it's an outlet, it's a place for us to actually expose these things, name them, bring them out into the light. And by entrusting them to other Christians, we are, in effect, entrusting them to the Lord himself. It's one of the best things that we can do with these things. Let me give you an example. So this past summer, I went through my first round of RUF training. And one of the first things that we did in one of our breakout sessions um, I was with all the other campus ministers in our area, so like North and South Carolina, Georgia. We all went to this conference room in the 
Hilton or whatever hotel we were in in Dallas. And the leader, the area coordinator, he started, his introduction was basically like, hi, I'm Justin. Let's go around and share the most embarrassing thing that's happened to us in ministry this last year. And everyone just like took a big breath or deep gulp. It's like, really? We're really going to do this? And I'm, you know, I'm a newbie my first year. I'm like, I'm going to share with all these strangers the most embarrassing thing in ministry that's happened this last year. I'm not going to tell you what everyone (laughs) shared because that would be breaching confidence. But I do want to tell you that by going through that process, our area coordinator was, he was calling us, he was inviting us out of hiding. And by, by asking us to share the most embarrassing thing that had happened to us in the last year, it completely stripped that thing, whatever it was, of its power. It removed the power of that shame. Because what, hap- what ended up happening was, as we shared these embarrassing stories, it seemed like, like each story got more and more embarrassing one after the other. We would share the story and then everyone would crack up laughing. And even the person telling the story would crack up laughing. Because we were all in it together. It was a safe place. And that just completely diffused the power of those embarrassing moments. It's kind of like if you've ever read or watched the Harry Potter books or movies. Kind of like a boggart. That thing just kind of feeds and grows in the dark and just feeds on your fear. But the moment you expose it, and if you can laugh at it, it just completely strips it of its power. So to sum up, if we're trying to manage our external pressures on our own, if we're trying to manage our internal inadequacies on our own, or if we try to let just like the general broader society, the world, dictate what those things will do for us, um, they'll only fuel our people-pleasing tendencies. And the only way to stop that or avoid that is to bring them out into the light to expose them. Well, what I want to do before we go onto the cure, I want to just for a second talk about some of the signs that you're caught up in people-pleasing, some of the bad fruit that results from it. And, and this will kind of, I think, highlight for us why this really is a big, a big deal, a big issue. Look with me at verses 5 and 6. Paul says, For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with the pretext for greed, God is witness, nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, that we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. So he highlights three things, three bad fruit for us. Words of flattery, a pretext for greed. Just think, um, just a, a, a desire for, for wealth and for money. And then also, um, just seeking glory from people. What do all three of these things have in common? All three of these symptoms, or all three of these are symptoms of using people instead of loving them trying to flatter someone, you're greedy, you want to get something from someone, or particularly you're seeking glory from some person, trying to steal glory from them. All three of these things are examples of using people instead of loving them. And so people pleasing might not seem like a big deal until we realize that people pleasers care way more about themselves than they do about other people. They care way more about their own reputations, their own comfort, than they do about the well-being of others. And because they care so much more about themselves than others, they're not able to share 
hard truths, even in love. So another example, again from The Office, again Michael Scott. Arguably the most uncomfortable, awkward show in the entire series is the episode Scott's Tots, where at the beginning of the episode, it, it, t- it turns out that Michael had promised a, a group of underprivileged kindergartners that if they would make it all the way through school and graduate, that he would pay for their college tuition. So then the episode takes place 10 years later, and this school has come calling because all these students, a class of, I don't know, 30, 40 students, have all graduated successfully. And now they want Michael to come back and provide them with their college tuition. And so think about this. For someone who... uh, who needs to be liked, who needs to be praised, uh, Michael goes with, with Aaron to the school, and, and you can tell just how, how uncomfortable, how awkward, how, how just straight-jacketed Michael is, both by this promise and his inability to keep this promise. He needs to be liked, he needs to be praised, and so he can't tell a bunch of high school seniors, hey guys, actually, I can't pay for your college tuition. It takes the whole, you know, 20, 25 minute episode to get to this point where Michael says, but I can pay for your laptop batteries. And you can imagine how that went over with with the students. What we see here is that we are straight jacketed by our people pleasing tendencies. It, It cripples us and it prevents us from loving people instead of using people. And it especially prevents us from being able to share hard truths in love. And this is exactly what, what Paul is saying. Look with, me, uh, look with me at verse 7. Paul highlights how he and his uh, partners in ministry were gentle with the Thessalonians, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. And, and not only that, if you actually jump back, I skipped ahead of, I jumped over this, but if you go back to verse two, earlier Paul highlighted that, that he shared the gospel with them with boldness. He said, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. The gospel is not the most easy, we're going to talk about this in a second, it's not the most easy message to hear and to receive and to accept. And yet what Paul is saying is that he was able to share it with the Thessalonians, both with boldness, but with gentleness as well. Why? Because he was actually loving other people instead of using them. And so we can learn from Paul, by example, how not to be people pleasers by following his model of of loving and caring for others. So Paul is saying he can do what what Michael struggled with, what we struggle with doing. He was able to share hard truths with boldness and compassion. And don't don't, don't you wish you could do that too? Don't you wish you had the ability to, let's say, share the gospel with someone? Or just simply share hard truths that that person really needs to hear that you know will be good for them, but might be difficult to, might actually be difficult for them to hear. Don't you wish you'd be able to do that, both with confidence, with boldness, but also with gentleness, with compassion, like a mother to her children? So how do we do that? How do we get to that point where we can do that? This brings us to our third question. What's the cure? 
what's the cure for people pleasing? Um, and right off the bat, I want to say that the cure is easy to understand, but it's nearly impossible or is impossible to implement. So look with me at verse 4. We'll see that the cure is easy to understand. Paul says that we speak not to please man, but to please God. There you go. There's the cure. Here's how you stop pleasing men. Please God. Let's close in prayer. No, I'm just kidding. Um, here's how you please, here's how you please, or here's how you get out of pleasing man. Please God who tests hearts. Another way of saying that is how do you get out of the fear of man? You replace it with the fear of God. It's so easy that a, that a child could understand it. You know, and, and it basically it means consider God's opinion greater than the opinion of others. Or the way one of my friends puts it, um, seek to live your life before an audience of one. Fear God, not man. Um, Psalm 118, verses 8 and 9, put it this way. Uh, it's better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. It's better to take refuge in the Lord than, the, than to trust in princes. So it's so simple, and yet it's impossible to implement. Here's, here's what I mean. Apart, apart from the good news of the gospel actually penetrating your heart, this is impossible for any of us to implement. I mean, Paul says this explicitly in another letter, in Romans 8. He says that for anyone that's kind of living life on their own, apart from God, apart from the Spirit, it is impossible to please God. So, if the gospel needs to penetrate our heart, well, what's the good news of the gospel, and how does it penetrate the heart? So, the good news of the gospel is this. This might be the most important thing that we consider tonight. In Jesus Christ, we are, look at verse 4, in Jesus Christ, we are approved by God. In him, we are approved by God. We already have God's approval. And then look at verse 12. In Jesus Christ, we are called into God's own kingdom and God's own glory. It's when that penetrates your heart, when you realize that you already have the approval of God, your Heavenly Father, when you realize that, that He has given you His glory, that's going to strip the beauty from seeking glory from mere mortals, of trying to gain the approval of someone sitting in this room or attending the school or someone back at home. It's when this gospel penetrates your heart that you actually can please God instead of pleasing man. Um, my first year of seminary, um, I had a, a classmate over to my apartment. We were having lunch and we were working on a group assignment. And I, I want to say this was a couple of years ago, more than a couple of years ago, so my memory is a little bit faded. But I want to say that I noticed um, a scar that was coming out of the collar of his shirt kind of up to his, towards his neck. And I think maybe another group mate, I don't think I had the courage to ask him, hey, what's that scar about? But I think someone asked him, hey, what's the story behind that scar? And he told me, and um, just a fair warning, uh, this isn't going to get too graphic, but it might be a little graphic, so I just want to give you a heads up. I'm not, it's not going to be that bad, but just want to give you a heads up. 
this classmate of mine, he, um, he said, yeah, I actually almost died. I was in high school. And I can't remember the ins and outs and the details of this, but essentially what ended up happening was, um, like, whatever disease or infection he had, it must have been some sort of bacteria, it had, like, started to spread through, like, through his bloodstream. And he had to get, like, medevaced in a helicopter to this big hospital. And they had to, like, actually open him up and take this pretty, like, long syringe and inject him with whatever antibiotic or whatever cure that he needed to get it all throughout his entire body. That's how serious it was. And, and so his scar was a result of that traumatic experience. The reason I share that is because what we need, what you and I need, is not, is not to look inside of ourselves and to dig deep and try to muster up the strength and the power to please God. What we need is to open ourselves up or to remain open to someone else to come and provide the cure that we so desperately need. That, that the cure of the gospel might penetrate deep into our hearts and spread all throughout our entire lives. In Jesus Christ, we see that God is for us, that he has provided for us a cure. Consider this. In Jesus, God experienced all the external pressures that you and I experience of this life. And he took on all of our internal inadequacies. He took on all of our sin. And he lost the Father's approval so that you and I might gain our Heavenly Father's approval. He was forsaken so that we would be adopted and brought in to the family of God. This is the good news of the gospel. And by Jesus, through him, God has approved us. God has called us into his kingdom and glory. And in Jesus, God is coming back to us and he will transform us fully and finally into the very image, the glorious image of his own son, Jesus. So friends, if God is for us, then who can be against us? We need to let the approval of God shrink the approval of everyone else. And so really briefly, how do we know that this, that this cure has actually taken? How do we know that we've got the good fruit of this cure? Um, I'm not going to be able to go through all of this, but if you look in verses 7 through 12, Paul lists a whole bunch of good fruit. So he talks about the good fruit of, of gentleness and a nurturing spirit in verse 7. He talks about the good fruit of hard work. It's actually a sign that we're not straight-jacketed by this people-pleasing struggle tendencies. In verse 10, he talks about moral integrity and righteousness and blamelessness as good fruit. And then in verses 11 through 12, he talks about being an encourager, an exhorter. So all these things are good fruit, but the one that I really want to focus on and end with is in verse 8. This good fruit of actually opening up yourself and giving yourself for others. Paul says, being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you became very dear to us. I'd say that the telltale sign that the cure has taken, that the gospel really has gotten in deep, is that you're willing to give yourself 
to others. You're willing to share your life, your story with others, knowing that actually it's a gift. It's a gift to share your story with other people. I want to share one last um, illustration of this, and then we'll close. Um, just a few years ago, this was after seminary, but when, when Amanda and I were still in St. Louis, um, we were Sunday morning in our church worshiping, and we had a, a time of testimony. And I'll never forget this. Um, a 16-year-old in our youth group, who I'm going to call Eloise, uh, she got up and she shared some of her own struggles with some of the things that we're talking about, with people-pleasing, with being kind of enslaved to other people's opinions of her, but even went beyond that and talked about her depression, her despair. I mean, she even went so far as to say that, like, yeah, I, I think there's a God, but I'll be honest, there are times when I'm praying where I'm wondering, am I just speaking to the room or am I, am I just speaking to the air? So she's like brutally honest and opened herself up to all of us there. But then she said this, and I'll never forget this, and I want you to, I want you to chew on this. She went, you know, I've realized with my, my, with my battle with depression, especially depression, anxiety, uh, there are things that help. Like medicine is good. Medicine's helped me. Um, but the lesson that I've learned from, from going through this is that I can't change myself and I've changed. She said, I can't change myself and I've changed. When she said that, and I, even as I'm saying it now, um, the hair stood up on the back of my neck and on my arms because I realized what she was bearing witness to was the power of God through his spirit, through the gospel, to break into someone's life and to transform that person from the inside out. That there really is power to change from our people-pleasing tendencies in and through the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit of Christ, of Jesus taking his word and implanting it deeper and deeper into our hearts. And so if there's one thing to do, um, it's remember to remember to pray God's promises back to him and preach God's promises to yourself. A friend of mine likes to, he takes a verse out of Colossians 3, uh, verse 12 and 13, and he recites it again and again to himself. He says, you are chosen, holy, loved, and forgiven. You are chosen, holy, loved, and forgiven. He takes a promise of God and meditates on it, preaches it to himself. Maybe for you, maybe for us coming out of 1 Thessalonians 2, we need to meditate on, we are approved by God and called into his kingdom and glory. We're approved by God and called into his kingdom and glory. Or maybe it's Romans 8, verse 31. If God is for us, who can be against us? And bear, bear witness and bear testimony to the fact that God really can change us from the inside out. We need him to do for us what we can't do for ourselves. And he promises to do for us what we can't do for ourselves in and through his only son, Jesus. So let's turn to him. Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, we, we thank you for um, both taking um, this people-pleasing uh, struggle that, that we have um, 
for throwing it under the microscope, but then also, Lord, for providing a cure for it. And, um, Lord, I struggle with this. I know that many in this room struggle with this. And uh, we pray that you would, um, that as we entrust this struggle to you, um, that you would teach us even more of yourself, that you would show us more of your loving kindness, and that you would give us um, a deeper, more abiding relationship uh, with your son, Jesus. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.